Well, a couple of months ago, a hundred or so Grace Chapel leaders gathered on a Saturday morning for what we call a leaders forum. The purpose of the gathering was to help the elders think through our proposal regarding women serving as elders here at Grace Chapel. The elders were eager to present and process that with the congregation in a way that would be helpful and respectful for everyone involved. And so we asked the leaders gathered for some input. And one of the suggestions they offered was that it would be helpful to hear a conversion story. In other words, someone who at one time was opposed to women in leadership, who now came to affirm women in leadership. It would be helpful, they said, if we could follow one person's spiritual, biblical journey on that matter. So we're going to take their advice and offer you one person's story this morning, and that person's story is me, okay? You'll get my journey on this subject. Um, That's good. I hope you're clapping at the end as well, so we'll see. (laughs) Now, for those who are just catching up, uh, the, the elders are bringing a recommendation to the congregation this spring that we change our bylaws to allow women to serve as elders at Grace. Uh, we have women pastors, we ordain women, we have women preach and teach and lead, but our current bylaws do not allow women to serve as elders. So we're bringing a proposal to, uh, to change that. So we'll be discussing that at our annual meeting next Sunday the 8th, and we'll be voting on it in all of our services and all of our campuses on Sunday the 15th. So A month or so ago, I preached the first sermon on this subject, and in that sermon, I tried to outline the two points of view on this matter, those who believe that senior leadership in the church is for men only, and those who believe it is open to women as well. And we made the point that day that that both of those points of view are biblically based. Now, they they come to different conclusions, but they argue from the Scripture, uh, both of them. Now, last time around, I tried to maintain a neutral stance as I presented those two points of view, comparing and contrasting them. Now, I thought it was fairly obvious my point of view, but I must have done a better job than I thought because several people afterwards said they didn't know what I thought when I was done. (laughs) So this week, I want there to be no confusion as to my point of view, but more importantly, I'd like you to hear the journey of how I got there. So, 30-some years ago, I believe that senior teaching and leading roles in the church were reserved for men only. Like many of us, I had grown up in that kind of a tradition. In the churches I grew up in, women were actively involved in the life of the church, but they did not serve in senior leadership. Um, There were no women elders or deacons in the churches that I grew up on. There were no women pastors. If a woman served on the staff of a church, she served probably as a music director or a Christian education director. Women didn't share committees. They didn't preach from the pulpit on Sunday morning. They didn't lead adult Bible classes or Bible studies. And all of this was based on the belief that, that God had ordained that men should hold spiritual authority in the church and that women should play supportive roles to those men and minister to women and to to other women and to children. And this point of view, of course, was grounded in chapters and verses that seem to affirm this kind of divine order for male-female relationships in the church. But as the years went by, I found myself increasingly troubled by inconsistencies and difficulties with that particular point of view. For instance, as a college student, 
One of my best Bible teachers was a woman, Dr. Joanne Cairns. She taught a course on the inductive study of Mark that has shaped my reading and teaching of Scripture like no course I have ever taken since that time. But Dr. Cairns would not have been permitted to teach or preach in most evangelical churches at that time because she was a woman. Now, that didn't make sense to me as a college student. What was the difference between teaching the Bible in a classroom or teaching the Bible in a church building? Why was it okay for me to learn from her as a 21-year-old college student, but not if I was a 22-year-old college graduate? I didn't follow the reasoning. I returned to my home church as a youth pastor and found myself bothered by things I had never really noticed before. I wondered why we, if, if, if we didn't allow women to teach because they were more easily deceived, as we had been taught, then why in the world did we allow women to teach some of our most vulnerable members, other, other women and children? Didn't seem to make any sense to me. When missionaries came home from the field, I was confused as to why out in the mission field they could preach, teach, lead, and plant churches, but they couldn't do those things back here in the States. That not only seemed inconsistent to me, it, it smacked of, of racism. What were we saying about Asian, African, and Latin American men if women were allowed to teach and lead them, but not allowed to teach and lead American men? It bothered me. I went off to seminary where I had female classmates who had obvious gifts in preaching and teaching and leadership, but I knew they would have a very hard time finding opportunities to use those gifts in the church. And I wondered why God would give these women such remarkable gifts and then deprive them and the church of an opportunity to use them. As a young pastor, one of my most reliable leaders was a, a woman named Martha. She was our church treasurer. She had remarkable gifts of administration, and she had a pastoral heart. I can tell you honestly, I would not have survived or been successful in that church if it had not been for Martha. But Martha could not sit on our deacon board because she was a woman. Now, that not only seemed to not make sense to me, it seemed a little bit ridiculous. Because the truth is, truth be told, nothing happened in that church without Martha's consent. <laughs> so who were we kidding, <laughs> pretending that she wasn't a senior leader? And why couldn't we give her the honor of being a deacon? That bothered me. As years went by, I had opportunities to serve organizations on their board or on teams that included women around the leadership table. And I was so blessed by their wisdom and perspective and the, and the rich community we enjoyed having men and women at the table. And I remember thinking, why can't we enjoy this kind of wisdom and community at the leadership table back at church? And did it really make sense to ask a group of men to provide adequate spiritual leadership to a congregation that was more than half women. It bothered me. And then I became father to a daughter. <laughs> a daughter who pretty early on demonstrated gifts for leadership and communication. Was I going to have to tell her that God could use her gifts in the secular world, 
but not in the church. Now, why, why, why would God design things that way? So for a period of 10 or more years, all these questions were swirling in my mind and heart. But all the while, I continued to hold to the view that senior leadership in the church was for men only. And I held that view for two reasons. Number one, the Bible. I believed the Bible to be God's authoritative word, and I'd always been taught that the Bible prescribed leadership roles for men only. The second reason I held that point of view was fear. Fear of what might happen if we allowed women to teach and lead in the church. Would we upset God's divine order? Would, would women take over? Would, would men drop out? Would, would God remove His blessing from the life of our church? So I wrestled with those issues for quite a few years. And over time, I came to a change of perspective. Now, I still believe in the authority of the Bible, God's Word. But I've come to believe that the Bible not only allows, but calls for women to exercise their full giftedness and calling in the life of the church. And I'm still afraid, but I'm no longer afraid of what might happen if we allow women to teach and lead. I'm afraid of what might happen if we don't allow them to teach and lead. So in the next few minutes, I'd like you to tell you the story of how I came to that change of perspective. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, it's a one-sided story. You may disagree with me at points. I fully understand that, and you're free to do that. I simply ask you to hear me out. I'll share three primary factors in that journey. The first factor in my change of mind was getting the big picture of Scripture. The big picture of Scripture. You see, my understanding of the Bible's teaching on this subject had always rested on a few very difficult, isolated texts. But the first rule of Bible interpretation is that you always interpret isolated texts in light of the whole counsel of God. And you interpret difficult texts in the light of clearer texts. And so over the years, as I taught and, and studied and preached the whole counsel of God and got the big picture, I came to a very different perspective on this matter. Let me take you on a quick survey. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get God's vision for humankind. Men and women are created equally in the image of God, and they share equally in the divine mandate to rule over creation. They are distinct, male and female, but there is no hierarchy. It is a partnership of equals. That's what God had in mind from the beginning. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall short of that mission. They sin, and as a result, a curse falls on them and all of creation. And because of that curse, the relationship between men and women is spoiled. It becomes characterized by a destructive, domineering, and desiring kind of rivalry. But that's a curse. It's a problem to be corrected, not a pattern to be followed. The rest of the Bible is a story of how God set things right. And as that story unfolds, we find women playing key roles in God's redemptive plan. In the Old Testament, we meet Miriam, a prophetess, who helped Moses lead the people out of Egypt and through the Promised Land. We meet Deborah, a judge who ruled over Israel, giving them victory over their enemies and leading them in a great moment of worship. We meet Huldah, another prophetess, 
whose ministry inspired King Josiah to renew the, the book of the covenant with his people. Now, if women in leadership was a violation of God's will, then why would he anoint and honor these women and their ministries? Well, then we come to the ministry of Jesus, and we find him affirming women, teaching women, and empowering women in ways that shocked even his disciples, even uh, allowing them to become the first witnesses to his resurrection. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on men and women. They all pray and prophesy. Peter says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a sign of the new age of the Spirit, that God's kingdom is breaking through. In the early church, we find women leading in all kinds of ways. Lydia helps to start the church in Philippi. Priscilla teaches the way of God more adequately to a preacher named Apollos. Phoebe is identified as a deacon of the church, and she delivers Paul's letter to the Romans. Junia is identified as an apostle of the church. Paul speaks positively about women praying and prophesying in the church in Corinth. He, he declares that the old discriminations between Jew and Greek Slave and free, male and female, have all been obliterated in Christ. And finally, we come to the book of Revelation, when God's redemptive work is complete, and we read that in that new creation, there will be no more curse. Men and women will serve God together and reign with Him together forever and ever. Did you hear that? No more curse. If anyone should understand reversing the curse, it's New Englanders. <laughs> So you see what I mean about the big picture. Before we start tangling with these isolated, difficult verses, we'd better be sure we know the beginning from the ending. We'd better capture the arc, the trajectory of God's redemptive purposes in history. Now, when I, as I preached and taught my way through the Bibles, I began to appreciate that big picture. I came to see this issue very, very differently. God's vision from the very beginning, has been for a humanity in which men and women share equally in his image and ruling over all creation. And we, his people, the church, ought to be pointing people towards that new and better day. So that's the big picture, the first factor in my change of mind on this subject. Having gotten the big picture, we can now go after some of those isolated, difficult texts. And that was the second factor in my change of mind, was a contextualized reading of those difficult texts. I know that's a mouthful, but we'll unpack it for a moment. A contextual reading of difficult texts. There are really only about three to five texts in the, in the whole Bible that seem to restrict women from teaching and leading. Only three to five texts. If, if we're going to tell half the church they can't preach and lead the other half of the church, we'd better be sure we're reading them right. And reading those verses right means reading them in context. In the context of the whole Bible and in the context of the situation to which they were written. So we can't look at all of them today. Let's look at just one of them, the most difficult and the most important one. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy who's leading a church in the city of Ephesus. Let's just walk through a few verses in chapter 2 and get a feel for this contextual reading of Paul's letter. Chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, 
prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Is God saying we should have kings? Is this a revelation as God ordained monarchies to be the proper form of earthly government? I think we'd all say no. But for many centuries, verses like this were used to support the idea of monarchy as a God-ordained form of government. How many of us have prayed for a king lately? Probably not many because we don't have a king. So what do we do? Do we ignore this verse? No, we contextualize it. We do our best to understand the situation in which it was written, and then we do our best to apply it to our situation today. And so we conclude that as God's people, we should be praying for our governing leaders, whether they're kings or presidents or prime ministers or whatever. Let's skip down to verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, does Paul only want men to pray? I mean, that's what he says. He says it pretty clearly. I want men to pray. He certainly could have mentioned women. He's going to mention them in the next verse. But he doesn't say it here. What do we do with this verse? Do we ignore it? No, we contextualize it. We do some research and we understand that in that church, apparently, men were doing more arguing and fighting than they were praying. And so Paul encourages the men to pray. But we know from the context of the whole Bible that God wants women to pray as well. And by the way, what do we do with lift up holy hands in prayer? How many of us men lifted up our hands when we prayed a few minutes ago? Not many probably, because contextually that's not how people often pray today. It's how they prayed in Paul's day. So do we ignore this verse? No, we contextualize it. Go to verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but how many women are wearing jewelry today? How many men are wearing jewelry today? How many of us bought clothes someplace other than the thrift shop? Now, what do, we, do we just ignore Paul's teaching on this matter? No, we contextualize it. We understand that at a certain time and place, braided hair and jewelry was a problem. But it's not always the same problem today. So we contextualize it and say that in our world, let's dress modestly and in moderation when we shop and when we dress. And we apply it to both men and women. So you see the importance of context. So now let's get to the, the critical verse, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now this is confusing. Paul says he does not permit a woman to teach. But he permitted Priscilla to teach. In fact, he even allowed Priscilla to correct the teaching of a preacher named Apollos. He says that women must be silent. But back in Corinth, he talked very positively about women praying and prophesying in church. He says a woman should not have authority over a man. But he told the church in Rome to honor Phoebe, a deacon, and Junia, an apostle. So on the one hand, Paul seems to have no problem with women teaching and leading in certain situations. 
and yet he doesn't allow it here. Something must be going on in this context that prompts him to say these things. And something was going on. A lot was going on, in fact. Ephesus was home to the temple of Diana and a whole cult of fertility religion that swirled around that temple. So there's all kinds of false teaching there that was going on in that city. And much of it was based upon a highly feminized, sexualized view of spirituality in which women were often considered to be superior to men spiritually. And so this false teaching was being accepted by and propagated by women as well as men in that city. When we understand that context, and when we remember that most women in those days had no formal education at all, and had never had opportunity to lead anything, we begin to understand why in that context, Paul would say, I don't let a woman teach her or usurp authority over a man. The context also helps us understand this particular verse he, word he uses in verse 11, to have authority over a man. It's a very unusual word he uses here. It's the only time in the New Testament it's used. Whenever we find it outside the New Testament, it's always used negatively to imply domineering authority or usurping authority. Given the context, we understand why he would say, don't allow a woman to usurp authority over men because that's what was going on in the city. So we can't ignore this verse, but we have to contextualize it, understand it in words, ways that are relevant to the world in which we live. And so today we make sure that our teaching is done by qualified teachers who don't usurp their authority and who don't misuse their femininity or their masculinity when they teach and lead. Now, Paul goes on to talk about Adam and Eve and, and the first sin and women being saved through childbirth. It is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible to interpret. We don't have time to unpack it phrase by phrase, but if we did, we would have to do it contextually. So here's my point. We contextualize verse 1 about praying for kings. We contextualize verse 8 about men lifting holy hands in prayer. We contextualize verse 9 about women not wearing jewelry. By what interpretive principle do we not contextualize verse 11 about women teaching, leading, and being silent? It's not consistent. Now, let me quickly point out, I have offered you one interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I understand there are other ways to interpret that passage. Smarter people than me, friends of mine, would offer a different understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's why it's a disputable matter. We are free to disagree respectfully on this subject. But if you take this teaching to be universally applied, then there's a fundamental question you have to answer. What do you do with the phrase, she must be silent? Paul doesn't just say women shouldn't teach or usurp authority. He says they should be silent. Now, why would we allow, how do churches today who would claim an adherence to this verse that won't allow women to teach or lead, but will allow them to speak, to pray, to read scripture, to share a testimony, to speak up in a congregational meeting? Unless you're in a brethren kind of a church, women are speaking in the church today. 
By what interpretive principle do you arrive at that conclusion? So you can see how a contextual reading of these difficult verses led to a change of mind on my part. So there's the big picture, there's the difficult texts. The third factor in my change of mind was a historical perspective on women in ministry, a historical perspective. And I'll do this one a little more quickly. When I did some research, I discovered that women had been effectively leading and teaching in the church from the very, very beginning. Now, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to take you all the way back to the first century, but I would like to take you back a few centuries to the founding of what we would call the evangelical movement that we are a part of today. Most historians will say that this evangelical movement began in the 1700s. It began with people like John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, both of those spiritual leaders were originally opposed to women teaching and leading, but they pretty quickly had a change of heart on this matter. Why? Because they found women teaching and leading in the Scripture and because they had a passion for evangelism. And they saw the fruitfulness of women's ministry in the church. And so both of them came to promote women preaching and pastoring. One of those women was named Mary Fletcher. She began preaching as a single woman. When she married her husband John, they founded a church together and co-pastored. When he died, she continued as a senior ministry minister for many years afterwards. Another woman, Lady Huntington, a devout Calvinist, set up, not only founded her own church, she set up a theological college and then a network of churches that eventually became a denomination that still exists today. George Whit, uh, Whitfield happily sat under her teaching ministry. In the 1800s, William and Catherine Booth founded the Salvation Army and it was egalitarian from the very, very beginning. Catherine wrote a book entitled, A Woman's Right to Preach. Their daughter Evangeline became general of the Salvation Army for many, many years. Phoebe Palmer was one of the most popular preachers of the 19th century. Wheaton College, an evangelical institution, was the first truly co-educational -edu college in the United States, allowing women to take, uh, come into school on an equal footing, take the same courses as men took. The first one. The early years of the 20th century saw over 50 women ordained as Baptist ministers in the first 20 years of the century. The Moody Bible Institute, a flagship of the conservative evangelical movement, began as a training institute founded by a woman named Emma Dreyer, who partnered with Moody in transitioning it to the Moody Bible Institute. For years, the Moody Bible Institute's publication boasted about the number of their women graduates who had been ordained to ministry and were serving as senior pastors. Henrietta Mears was the Christian education director at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. Some of the young men that she taught were Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, Jim Rayburn, founder of Young Life, and Billy Graham, who I think you know. Those men, all of them, will say Henrietta Mears was one of the best Bible teachers they ever had. The Evangelical Free Church, a wonderful, thriving denomination, has been egalitarian from its very founding. A.J. Gordon of Gordon College and Gordon-Conwell fame was a champion for women's rights and for women ministers. I hope you get the point. For 200 years, from the 1700s to the 1900s, evangelical churches and institutions promoted women in ministry and leadership. And they did that because of their commitment to the scriptures and their passion for evangelism. 
So I know what you're asking. What happened? If this was our history, what happened that we suddenly have restrictions on women in ministry today? I'll tell you one of the things that happened. In the post-World War II years, evangelical churches and institutions wanted to be more respectable in the secular world. And so they began to follow the lead of the more liberal theological seminaries that did not train or allow women to take classes. Like the Harvard Divinity School, for instance, which did not accept a woman student until 1955. Hundreds of years after evangelical schools were training women for ministry. Listen to what one church historian concludes. Often, when women have been excluded from ministry in evangelical churches, it has been the result of aspirations toward worldly respectability and other cultural factors. On the other hand, when evangelicals have prioritized the gospel and the Bible, this has often led them to affirm women in public ministry. Friends, it is time we reclaimed our historic evangelical commitment to the authority of the Bible, to the urgency of the gospel message, and to the equality and dignity of men and women to be about God's work in this world. That is our heritage. And so it's those three factors that led me to this change of mind on this subject. The big picture of Scripture, a contextual reading of the difficult text, and this historical perspective. I, I understand that people will look at this evidence and come to some very different conclusions, and you're free to do that. We have to respect each other on this point of view. But as a congregation, we need to come to some resolution on this matter. And so we would like to have the, allow the congregation an opportunity for a majority of the congregation to determine our practice going forward. And we'll have an opportunity to do that in a couple of weeks. Now, I said earlier, there was a time when I was afraid of what might happen if we let women teach and lead in the church. Well, now I'm afraid of some other things. I'm afraid that under our current practice, we are falling short of God's vision for our church and for human society. I'm afraid that under our current practice, we are failing to nurture and empower half the church to reach their full potential in Christ. I'm afraid that under our current practice, we are putting stumbling blocks in the way of people who are trying to find their way towards faith in Christ. I'm afraid that under our current practice, we are not providing adequate leadership for this body of believers here at Grace Chapel. I'm afraid that under our current practice, we are failing to show the world what relationships between men and women were meant to look like. I'm afraid that I and we will be held accountable for these decisions. And I've said before, and I'll repeat it again this morning, I do not believe that this is a matter for parting fellowship over. I didn't leave when this motion didn't pass seven years ago, and I have no intention of leaving if it doesn't pass this time. But I do want you to know I am increasingly uncomfortable before God and you under our current practice, and the elders as well. And so that is why, once again, we are bringing to the congregation and giving you an opportunity to seek God's will and leading with us 
I'm grateful for the respectful atmosphere we've had as we considered these things and trust that in the next couple of weeks we will thoughtfully and prayerfully follow the Lord forward wherever he would lead us. And I find it interesting that once again in the providence of God, we are talking about this controversial subject on a communion Sunday. And that's a good thing. Because this table reminds us that what we have in common is far stronger and more important than what might divide us. And what we have in common is our faith in Jesus Christ, His life, death, resurrection, and coming again. And so as we think on these things for a few moments, as we invite God to speak to us individually and collectively, let's gather together and affirm our common commitment to Christ, His gospel, and His church. Let's bow and pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom to consider these things together with love and respect and grace and thought. Thank you for the richness and the beauty of your word, even when it's mysterious and profound. Thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to help us discern and understand. Thank you that we have one another to stretch and challenge each other. We ask now, Lord, that you might guide us individually and collectively as we think on these things and many more, as we seek to be the people and the church you would have us to be in the days to come. Thank you now for this table, for the reminder of all that unites us as one people, one family in Christ. Meet us here in these next few moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.